0: Today's Desert Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Roar Zufari, located in Vienna, Virginia. Known as Fairfax County's largest petting zoo, Roar Zufari's goal is to connect families and animals and create awareness, understanding of wildlife, and the environment in which it lives. The 30-acre family-owned zoo is located at 1228 Hunter Mill Road in Vienna, Virginia. Visitors are offered a Zufari tour, walking tour, camel rides and the zoo features a large walk-in parakeet aviary, magical butterfly gardens and numerous memorable opportunities to get close to animals of all sizes. On the web at www.gorsafari.com, also on Instagram and Facebook. The Desert Ranch podcast is brought to you from Indian Springs Working Ranch, located in the beautiful Palenqueo Wilderness Mountains of Eastern Arizona. Indian Springs Working Ranch provides guests with an authentic working ranch experience. Guests will herd cattle, on horseback, repair fences, and live as real ranch hands do. Check it out at www.IndianSpringsWorkingRanch.com. Also brought to you by Our Lazy J Wildlife Ranch, an education and conservation breeding ranch in Eager, Arizona. Get up close and personal with more than 56 species from around the world. Encounter sloth and lemur, cheetah and clouded leopard, as well as many types of hoofed, feathered, and scaled wildlife. On the web at rlazyjranch.com.
1: Welcome to the Desert Ranch Podcast with Vanessa Rohr, Vanessa and her guests,
0: We'll give you some insight into the lives of those who are keeping us from being naked, hungry, and thirsty. Now, here is your host, Vanessa Rohr. Today's guest, as we're about to hear, is going to be speaking about animal rights and animal welfare. And me personally, as someone that raises livestock and owns zoos, I want to emphasize my own personal commitment to welfare and make sure everyone understands what that is. Animal welfare includes all animals, whether used for food, companionship, or sport. It's based on principles of animal ownership and reflects a common sense approach that animals should be treated well, and animal cruelty is wrong. We can't be more clear about that. Animal welfare standards and guidelines for animal use and management are based on sound veterinary and animal husbandry experience, research, and practices. The American Veterinary Medical Association views animal welfare as a, quote, human responsibility that encompasses all aspects of animal well-being, including proper housing, management, nutrition, disease, prevention, and treatment, responsible care, humane handling, and when necessary, human euthanasia. There should be no unnecessary suffering, including animals that provide for human needs. And this, just to be clear for the sake of today's topic, it is not something that we will be arguing. We are all in favor of exceptional welfare. Um, our zoos, the zoos that I own and operate, are um, in good standing with all of our permittees. Our zoo and roars sufari in Vienna, Virginia, is accredited by the Zoological Association of America, and it is certified by American Humane. And when we talk about animal Rights or animal activists were referring to extremists that believe in an ideology that there is no distinction between animals and humans. Um, they're often arguing for personhood. They view animal ownership of any kind as a- exploitation and slavery. The true goal of animal extremist groups is to work for legislation and regulations only until all animals are no longer owned or utilized by human beings. And with that, on with the show. Welcome, my guest to the Desert Ranch podcast, Heidi Krosky. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. The, some of my listeners might be wondering why I have a zoo person on. Uh, I have mentioned in previous podcasts that uh, we have two zoos. Um, agriculture is where my heart's always been and where all this started, but certainly there are in many people, probably anybody that owns animals has something in common with us and certainly cat dog owners, breeders, they may not own livestock or a farm, but I, I'd be hard pressed to find any grower, or producer without a cat or a dog or several for that matter. And That's true. Yeah, and I think also livestock owners understand as producers that while many of us have mutts and rescues, that we can't just run down to the shelter when we need a guardian dog for our our herds or a working dog to work cattle. And so therefore, we understand the need for selective breeding. We, We can relate on that aspect to people that are breeding pets and, and breeding working dogs and and that sort of thing. Don't you think?
1: Yes. Yes. I think that we recognize certain things that maybe the general population may not understand at this point, but there's definitely a need for purebred animals. And I think producers can see that.
0: Yeah. And then, then you have us as zoo owners and we're Almost always functioning like a livestock operation, right? We're breeding animals, we're feeding animals, we worry about nutrition. We have cow or cow like animals, members of the bovidae family, capridae, ovidae, birds of all types. And we're buying feed, utilizing vets, making hay, worrying about input costs, just like many producers, and often working under the same government regulators.
1: Yes. That is very true. (laughs) At our zoo, we have um, one of the things we're most proud of is our fallow deer herd. And um, they're probably the most regulated animal that we have, but we're very proud of them. And, you know, there's a whole uh, deer farming community that a lot of people may not even know about.
0: That's right. The deer farmers, I I think we're all part of what I like to call alternative agriculture.
1: Yes, definitely. (laughs) We have many different types of alternative agriculture animals. (laughs)
0: Right. And perhaps one of the subjects that links us all together, pet breeders, zoos, livestock producers, all those that believe we um, are, are those people that believe we shouldn't exist, are detractors. And often we hear these people working under the guise of animal welfare, yet actually they don't actually care for many if any, animals themselves, and sometimes even end up harming animals.
1: Yes, I think there's a lot of well-intentioned people um, that lack practical experience. And I think whenever we are going to discuss animal welfare, we have to involve the people that are dealing with these animals on a daily basis. I think that's really, really important um, that we see the reality of caring for an animal and make sure that that is recognized whenever we're dealing with legislation or anything else. Right. And, and I guess I'm
0: speaking specifically um, to the Voldemort's of our industry, those who shall not be named, but we'll name them um, <laughs> the Humane <laughs> society of the United States, uh, the people for the ethical treatment of animal who have great sounding names. Um, but here in the state of Virginia, there's We've really been at war. There's been a war waged on us, uh, people that own animals.
1: Yes, it's very unprecedented, I think, what is happening in the state of Virginia. Um, we have, and I know you're familiar with this, we have the first animal law unit uh, that has been set up through the attorney general's office. Uh, and it was set up um, with the belief, or at least the uh, the guise, <laughs> of being there to get rid of dog fighting and cock fighting. And I think there was a lot of of agreement on that within the state. That yes, this was a good thing to do. But it was established in 2015. And since that time, we've seen a real evolution uh, from the animal law unit and and who they're targeting and perhaps why people are being targeted. And so we have a lot of concerns. And that's actually the reason that we formed uh, the Virginia Animal Owners Alliance was in response to the animal law unit within our state. I, and I know you and I have talked before, like when we we start
0: to tell people about these stories, these situations, even people in our, our zoo industry or in agriculture, they look at us and, and we can see it <laughs> in their eyes. They're going, you're making this up. You're exaggerating. But-
1: well, I wish that we were, you know, and I agree. It sounds crazy um, as you really delve into it. But, um, you know, there's nothing like going and sitting in a courtroom that will give you a very quick education. And so when you see how the law is being interpreted, how it's being manipulated, how it's being used against good people, you realize that it's time to wake up and we've got to do something if animal ownership is going to continue in our state. And I believe across the nation, uh, because Virginia seems to be uh, kind of an experimentation a uh, state to see you know hey what can happen here and then perhaps be implemented in other states
0: right right and we're we're seeing some of that already and and we'll come back to that i want to talk just briefly as intro into this i guess let's call it an experiment by the animal law unit or by by the virginia legislature in creating these um you know this group and what's become of it i don't think is what was intended for it but there was an, a lovely lady in, I think, Southern Virginia that was on the ASPCA board, and and they tried to charge her with cruelty over a, a stray kitten or something like that.
1: So I believe the case you're referring to is the case of Paula Weich. I could be wrong because there's yes. been so many cases, um, <laughs> but the case of Paula Weich, I believe, is very uh, relevant. It happened, I believe, I have to go back and look at my notes, but I believe it happened uh, in 2013. So this was actually before the animal law unit formed officially. Um, But the reason this is relevant is that she was on the board of the uh, Roanoke Valley SPCA, I believe I have the name right. Um, She was on their board trying to help, you know, stray animals, abandoned animals, and she had taken in a stray dog. Well, it turns out that this dog had a skin condition, which she tried to treat but was unsuccessful. Uh, Ultimately, she was charged over that dog that she was trying to help, a stray dog that she was trying to help, that she had taken in, um, you know, out of an act of compassion. And the reason this is relevant is that the person that prosecuted Paula was Michelle Welch. Now, this is a name that Virginians are learning more and more. you know, and I don't know how Michelle got into to doing this, but I think things have gone too far at this point. But back in 2013, uh, and when this case was happening, um, she was the prosecutor, and she, it's in the Roanoke Times, you can pull up the article, uh, where she's saying that, you know, if Paula had just euthanized this dog, that everything would be okay. But ultimately, Paula won her case, and we're very thankful for that. But Uh, That was in 2013, 2014, somewhere in there. And then by 2015, we had the Animal Law Unit established. uh, And Michelle Welch is the director of the Animal Law Unit. And so what we're seeing against Paula Weich back, you know, a couple years previous, that same mentality now is being used against other animal owners. And so I think it's really important to look at some of the history of the people that are involved with the unit, some of the actions that have been taken and I think we have to ask ourselves, is this really what we want in our state? Do we wanna be prosecuting good people? Uh, Paula White should have never been prosecuted. And she was, she was put through a lot, she was arrested. And you know, there's a lot of turmoil that comes with being charged even if you win your case. And so um, I, I think we gotta dig through some of these cases, go back through them, look at the history of people that have won their cases and just say, you know, why is this happening in the state of Virginia? Uh, the story of Travis Evans, um, happened uh, two or three years later, and it actually gained worldwide attention um, because of just how horrendous and horrific a case it was that he was charged when he did nothing wrong. And
0: let's back up just to one of those details. So you said Michelle Welch said, hey, if you'd euthanize this animal, then you would have done nothing wrong. It, this animal had a skin condition. So that seems like a crazy thing to me for someone that really loves animals that they would say, you know, the solution isn't to treat the skin condition, it's just to euthanize the animal.
1: Well, and I think, you know, and this is something that I think all animal lovers can agree on, that we want to try to save the animal. Euthanasia is not uh, the first option if you're an animal lover. (laughs) So I think that, you know, we really need to look at um, the fact that sometimes animals have imperfections. Uh, That doesn't mean that they're abused. That doesn't mean that they're neglected. I mean, humans have imperfections. Humans have health conditions. Um, So this is something that we need to look at logically. This is part of life, whether we like it or not. And we shouldn't be prosecuting people uh, for things that are just part of having a pet. This is just the reality of having a pet. We want them to be perfect, but it doesn't always happen that way. (laughs) Right,
0: right. And then one of the other, there's so, like you mentioned, there's so many really heartbreaking cases. Um, But one that there's, there's several that really struck me, but one is Mr. Ritter, right? So Mr. Ritter was someone who loved game birds and was raising game birds. And there's no law against raising game birds, right?
1: So Mr. Ritter, he, um, and I have attended his uh, I attended his trial, and it was it was just something to see, and it was a real opportunity to be able to meet him and sit down and talk with him. And I really appreciate knowing this family now; they are a very fine family. Uh, but he was unaware that the hobby of owning game chickens made him a target. Um, and at the time that he was raided, he was seventy three years old, and to see how he was treated. Um, by the Virginia Animal Fighting Task Force. This is something we have to get into, but the Virginia Animal Fighting Task Force um, existed before the Animal Law Unit, and a lot of the same people work in both groups. So when you talk about the Virginia Animal Law Unit or the Virginia Animal Fighting Task Force, it's a lot of the same individuals that we're talking about, and he was raided. um, We have his story on our Facebook page, but he was raided, his wife I was in her pajamas she was held out in the cold in 17 degree weather um, while they went through their house. you know and, and you sit sit and hear this story or you talk to him and you think, would I want my grandparents being treated this way over a chicken? you know if there's a question, mm-hmm. um, there's got to be a better way to handle it. I would not want my grandparents held out in freezing temperatures and treated in this way by law enforcement, over chickens. So we really need to, I think, sit down and, and have a conversation about what is wrong with this
0: picture. Right. And walk us through that, that raid, right? They didn't just quietly go up and knock on the door and say, hey, we, we heard there's a problem. There might be a problem with your chickens. They, they came in with a battering ram, right?
1: This is crazy, yes. And I know it's just one paragraph, Vanessa, if you will let me read this. I want to make sure I get everything right. Can I do that? Absolutely. Because this case, I want to make sure that the details are correct, each detail and it is very compelling. Um, It's just one paragraph. Let me read you this. I think it is very, um, it's horrific what happened. This took place in Winchester, Virginia, uh, which is up in Northern Virginia. Uh, Steve George Ritter, Sr., raised and owned chickens since he was a boy early on the morning of november 28 2018 mrs ritter answered a noise at the door and was met by a battering ram in her face she was dressed only in her pajama bottoms and a t-shirt and was held by officers in the 17 degree weather while their house was cleared mr ritter was also brought outside Authorities suspected Mr. Ritter of cockfighting. They wore SWAT-style black uniforms and were bearing long guns. The raid lasted from 7.45 a.m. to 4 p.m. Mr. and Mrs. Ritter were kept under armed guard the entire time. They had to ask permission to use the restroom in their own home and were escorted to and from the bathroom. Authorities pressured Mr. Ritter to surrender his chickens. Michelle Kitts worked as an animal control officer for Frederick County and was the one who secured the search warrant. Animal control officers answer to Mark Herring's animal law unit. That's the important thing to understand. She told Mr. Ritter if he did not surrender the birds, he would be charged $10 per day, sorry, per bird, per day for their care until the prosecution was complete. This equated to over $1,600 per day. Mr. Ritter wanted to know if his sons could care for the birds in his stead, but uh, but Richard Samuels of the Virginia Animal Fighting Task Force told him that they could be charged if they had anything to do with the birds. Mr. Ritter ultimately surrendered his prized chickens to the raid team. There was other property, however, that authorities seized. This included five pounds of feed family photos cell phone ipad bank records cash guns and anything they believe to be related to the chickens they even confiscated the family's great pyrenees guard dog lucky to me this this story and it keeps going you can see it on our facebook page but this story is just uh horrific to see how this family was treated and the amount of money that they wanted to charge them to care for these chickens. If it costs that to care for chickens, I doubt that many people would own chickens.
0: Right, right. Pure intimidation tactics. And at the end of the day, we have to ask, where's the due process?
1: Right, right. And that's what we're seeing in case after case, animal owners, um suspicions are being used against them instead of facts and there is no due process uh we had legislation just this session um to try to have the pre-crime language of current law removed um our bill was ultimately amended to take that out but we need to fight for the due process language because it's not in the code we are being treated differently than other citizens and this is wrong and that
0: pre-crime language means that it's Perfectly legal for agencies to go in, and how is that worded?
1: Um, So, one section of the code has the phrase about to be. If they feel that you are about to violate something, uh, about to do something, that's pre crime. And then another section of the code uh, uses the word apparent. If there's been an apparent violation, we wanted to strike the word apparent because if you have a thin dog, it's possible the dog is old. <laughs> right. It's possible it's cared for. It's possible it's very loved under vet care, all of these things. So we are saying, please have the animal control officer do some fact finding, find out the age of the dog, find out the care the dog is receiving, find out if it's seen a vet, when it saw a vet, do some fact finding. Uh, don't just assume that the the owner is cruel because the dog is thin. We have to have fact finding in place and that's not happening. Right. Can you imagine
0: if, if this law or this type of language was written into other codes? Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you a speeding ticket today because I think you're about to speed.
1: I I, I mean, (laughs) it's, it's very crazy. Uh, when we first started this, um, it would have been December of 2019. So the zoo, there was the zoo, and we may touch on this again, but there was a zoo raided in Winchester, Virginia, uh, very close uh, to the Ritter family. Um, but there was a zoo raided there. And that is why we actually formed the Alliance after attending that seizure hearing. And just, it was a 12-hour education, a 12-hour hearing, and we learned a lot in those 12 hours. Um, but that preempted what we did with the Alliance and we hired attorneys to try to dig into the code, to see what was happening, why we were being treated this way, why animal owners are receiving no due process. And um, we found a lot of things with the code, but what was really uh, strange was that when our attorneys went into this and they started looking to see Uh, What parts of the code used similar language or similar treatment? They found that the only other group that is being treated this way at this time, this would have been December 2019, uh, was those that are already in custody when they are being checked for weapons. So animal owners are being treated as though we are already in custody. To me, that was an amazing find. Um... That we're already being treated as though we are already, uh, we've already been arrested, we're already in custody, that that should not be the case, and it is.
0: Right, and and when I tell people these stories, that's what they're thinking, you know, they're like, you know, clearly she's wrong because, you know, you'd only treat hardened criminals this way, but, you know, Mr. <laughs> Redder, not a hardened criminal, and, no. um, and then, you know, the SPCA board member trying to do the right thing. And and back to Mr. Ritter real quick, because you mentioned that Michelle Welch's solution to the SPCA board member was that, you know, just euthanize it. What happened to Mr. Ritter's chickens? Did he end up getting them back? I know he was pretty much acquitted of of any felony wrongdoing there. What happened to So.
1: It's kind of, the numbers, you'll see the numbers, um, there was a little confusion as to how many birds were taken and what happened with the birds. But what we can find was that the majority of them were euthanized. Now, you would think that if we had this team to save animals, that the first thing that the animal law unit would want to do would be to save these birds, right? If, if they suspect they're being fought, if they suspect all these horrible things, mm-hmm. then you would think they would want to rescue them and give them forever homes. But that is not what happened. Uh, the majority of the birds were euthanized. So I've gone back here to the story that we posted on our Facebook page. Uh, and it says that Michelle Kitts, who testified against Mr. Ritter, that she testified that 77 hens and seven roosters were rehomed. The other 84 birds were destroyed. So we have 84 birds that were killed. How is this animal welfare? That's our big question. How is this unit promoting animal welfare? Well, at the end of the day, I don't see how anybody could say that it is.
0: Um, And, you know, going back to this zoo that was raided, I believe there were animals that were Euthanized as a result of that raid as well.
1: Yes. So when we went to the seizure hearing, um, Ernesto Dr. Ernesto Dominguez was one of the star uh, witnesses against the zoo owner, and he was, I believe, the lead veterinarian for the raid team. And he testified that they euthanized the macaque. So this is a type of primate, type of monkey. Uh, they euthanized the macaques because they could carry herpes B. Now I've talked to people that have handled macaques and they said that they can carry this, but that just means that you handle them in a careful way. You, you handle them. You have certain, uh, things in place, certain protocols in place for handling a macaque. Well, apparently the,
0: I was going to say you can test for this also if you if you're really concerned for it, right?
1: Yes. Yes. So that did not happen. They euthanized them because they could have herpes be. Now, what's interesting is that the Virginia Animal Owners Alliance uh, recently filed a Freedom of Information Act request. And we obtained a document in regards to the rave. And there was a little tidbit of information in the one document that we had not heard before. And uh, according to the memorandum that was put out by the game department, they went in under the guise of only seizing the primates. That is what they told the game department. So if you were only going there to seize the primates, you would think you would already, this is not a great number of animals, you would think you would already have homes for those primates. You would already have people ready to take them, rescue them, save them from this horrible situation. However, (laughs) according to the FOIA document, the raid team contacted a woman and wanted her to take the macaques, but she did not think that she had housing for them. So that adds a new element in to what actually happened to them. Was it indeed that they were concerned about the herpes bee, or was it that they could not find them a home? The more we learn about this, the more questions we have, and we need a lot of exposure to this because people care about animals. The general public cares about animals, but I guarantee you, they would not like how those macaques were euthanized by the animal law unit, right? And then, what about the?
0: You know, basically, they then lied to the game department because they they end up taking uh, bears, big cats. Uh, were there other
1: animals too that they confiscated that day? They took over a hundred animals. Again, there were some conflicts as to the numbers of animals between uh, when we were sitting there in the seizure hearing uh, they had one number and then they had another number. And so there were some conflicts there, but they took over a hundred animals and the zoo owner claimed that they took the most valuable animals because they left animals as well. You would think that if you were there to rescue the animals, that you would rescue them all. Right. That that would be the the thought you care about all of them. Right. But Just they didn't. The pretty ones. Just the pretty They ones. took the. And the they f- took the most, valuable. <laughs> the most uh, valuable. It is my understanding that they left the potbelly pigs, for example. Okay. Uh, pigs are highly intelligent, but apparently they were left. And there's other animals that were left behind. So there's a lot of questions here. Um, it seems it seems like it was a very reckless uh, action. Um, there were a lot of things that were mishandled handled a lot of things done wrong and that's what we're trying to bring exposure and raise awareness to these facts. You
0: know what I found amazing and and this is just to give I think perspective on how pervasive these situations are and the power that are wielded by these organizations is the Washington Post came out with a story within hours of that raid. So you know, while you think, oh, you know, maybe this law unit um, orchestrated this raid because it was just so urgent. These animals were in dire straits and they had to do something. They didn't have time to test the macaques. Uh, you know, they they just went in there. And, but no, but they had it orchestrated so that the press release was picked up by the Washington Post within hours. And <clears throat> I'm here in the D.C. Beltway. I can tell you it's it's very hard to get any um, airtime in the DC market. So, I mean, that, that just tells me, I don't think it was a slow day at Washington post. I think this had been planned well in advance and, and, you know, right down to the media part of it, they were trying to get their spin on the story and, you know, make sure that they had the coverage that was going to make them look like the heroes at the end of the day.
1: And I do think that's true. I think certain things were very planned. Uh, But I think that essential uh, areas, essential segments of this raid, uh, you know, the, the welfare of the animals, which is supposed to be the whole point of the raid, that was botched. How was that botched? When that is your whole reason for existence, how did you get this wrong?
0: Right. It makes you think that at the end of the day, they they're really not as much about saving the animals as they are as putting people out of business, humiliating them, uh, you know, taking their livelihoods and making sure there are less zoos or no zoos or, you know, less breeders, no breeders. And they're indiscriminate. I I mean, even down to the individual pet owners like um, Miss Coley.
1: Yes. So the um, the Debbie Coley case uh, is another shocker. Um, we would not have known about this case because it was not reported in the media. The only way I know her story is that it happened here in my county, in Wythe County, Virginia, where I live, and we had mutual friends. And that's the only reason and the only way that I found out about her story. And And her story is fairly recent. Was it 2000,
0: it was during COVID, right? That um, she found right before Christmas, um, she got a knock at the door and and someone telling her that, look out, we're coming back for
1: you. Yes. Um, so, and her trial was actually last spring. So yes, it's very, very recent. Uh, what had happened with her was that she had a couple of dogs that got loose. Um, and how many of us have had the challenge of trying to find a an animal you know the panic we know the panic of uh, you know a dog getting loose something happening and you, you go and you try to find it you don't want it to get it to the road uh well she had two dogs that got loose and they got hit and one did not make it and the other one uh, a neighbor found and it was still alive and the neighbor took it to the local veterinarian well debbie found out very quickly it was actually her vet And she went to the vet clinic, got her dog, you know, was very thankful for the actions of the neighbor for taking the dog in. Uh, But the dog had um, some issues. It was paralyzed in the back end. And Debbie wanted to save her dog. Uh, His name was Romeo. And she wanted to try to save Romeo. And so she, you know, she took him to the vet. She got him the cutest little wheelchair that you've ever seen uh, and was trying to have uh, laser treatments done on this dog. Well, as COVID goes, how many COVID stories do we know? As COVID goes, they all ended up with COVID. It went through the family. Uh, it was a horrendous time for them. But they continued to take care of Romeo during this time now, while they're in quarantine. And,
0: and just to give the listeners an example of what caring for Romeo meant, it wasn't just that you walked him out to go potty in, or took him out in his wheelchair. He had lost all control of his bowels, right? Right.
1: Of his bladder or bladder, what I understand bladder. Okay. And um, so, yes, there's constant bathing of Romeo required, right? Because he doesn't have control of that anymore. Uh, And he had his little wheelchair, but you know, he developed pressure points. He's developed some spots on him uh, from being in that wheelchair. And Debbie had never had a dog in a wheelchair before. You know, this was a new experience for her and she was doing her very best uh, to care for Romeo. But uh, in the end, she thought, you know, I'm just not getting where I want to get with this dog. And she was told about a local rescue that had helped special needs animals. So they got in touch with the rescue. They talked to them. And it was decided that, you know, they were willing to try to help Romeo. If she wanted to give him to them, they would try to help. They told her they had miracle vets. And so with this uh, faith and with this hope, Debbie took her dog to the rescue and she gave her dog to them. Well, they had told her about these miracle vets, but as it turned out, they didn't take Romeo to miracle vets. They immediately took him uh, to the veterinarian and had him put down. So, you know, and I could even at that point, I could see, well, maybe the dog, you know, was in a different shape than they thought. Right. I could Mm -hmm. still give them that. But it's mm-hmm. the next step that shocks, shocks me. Mm-hmm. Debbie was turned in for animal cruelty. So she took this dog to try to get him help, to try to get him to Miracle Vets. And in the end, she's charged with cruelty, uh, arrested on Christmas Eve. And this is just a horrible thing. The Commonwealth charged her with torture. Oh, my gosh. Torture. Can of you this imagine? dog. And she was doing everything she could to try to help the dog. So she hired a local attorney, uh, Michael Sobey, and he was a former Commonwealth attorney, and he fought for her. And she ultimately won her case. The Commonwealth moved to reduce the charge uh, from torture down to a misdemeanor. And they did all this, it never made it into the newspapers. Uh, she won her case. But I think this shows you. Um, how malicious some people can be, that, um, you know, they're not looking at people's motivation, that people's heart, what they're trying to do, uh, this idea, you know, that, that you don't want to be judged. Animal owners are very judged. And all it takes is one person to judge you. And you have to go through this whole rigmarole with court, uh, the trauma of being arrested, the fear of going to prison, These are scary, scary things for animal owners. And you don't believe it until it happens to you or somebody that you know. Right. And,
0: uh, you know, who I think I don't think she had young children there, but that's what I'm thinking. If I have young children and and they come and (laughs) break down my door, take me to jail, who's taking care of my kids and the, you know, the expense of having to get an attorney all because you were doing the best you could for an animal you love dearly. And yes. And, and I mean, honestly, it, it seems like she was a little swindled by this rescue.
1: I feel that way. I, you know, I, I see these stories that these rescues will put out oftentimes. And I think there's a lot of good hearted people. I will say this. I think there's lots of good hearted people that work within the rescue community. But then there's another side um, where it's I don't know. It's like they want publicity. They want awards. I don't know what it is. But there's a side to this that I think is very dark. And, you know, we need to be careful. Um, if you're truly there to, to rescue an animal, to save an animal, that's fine. But you need to think about the people, too. We shouldn't, you know, the policy should be do no harm. And people are being harmed. Animals are being harmed by these policies, by these laws, by these protocols. We have to, we have to sit down and say, you know, hey, something's wrong here. We need to change this. This is not Right.
0: Well, if the people that are listening today aren't just a little frustrated about what they're hearing, I think the Arena Barrett case is one that would blow most people's minds, um, and in the fact that uh, I'll let you tell about her story more. But what what really gets me is here several years after um, she's been fighting this battle, the animals that were boarded at her boarding facility have still not been reunited with their animals. But tell us a little bit about what you can with Irina Barrett. I know her case is still um, ongoing.
1: Yes, so the Irina Barrett case, um, I don't know. We have put out multiple stories, multiple updates about Irina Barrett on our Facebook page. I hope everybody will go there and read these stories, because I know we don't have time to get to all the details today. Um, But with Irina Barrett, uh, this happened in 2020. And she had home and family in Fauquier, Virginia. And she had dogs, puppies um, that she was caring for. She has a kennel in West Virginia. And, you know, it's, I mean, th- this is a business. You know, people don't look at this. These are people's livelihoods that are being destroyed by this. Uh, but she was raided. Uh, and the way that this raid occurred um, was over a puppy. She had a Doberman puppy named Yeva, and one day Yeva stopped eating. How many of us that own dogs can, can relate to this? <laughs> the dog stops eating. And puppies. <laughs> like my, my puppy is always getting into trouble. <laughs> yeah. So we know what puppies are like, right? Puppies like to chew things, eat things. You're constantly watching the puppy, right? Um, but she had a puppy that stopped eating. So she takes Yeva to the vet. Well, at first, the vet could not find out what was wrong with the puppy, but uh, they figured it out. Finally, she had eaten a piece of plastic, and it had not shown up. So they work on the puppy. They operate on the puppy, but the puppy developed peritonitis. The puppy did not make it. The, if you look at peritonitis and you know Google these things, um, I mean, this is a common occurrence. It's very uh, easy to lose a puppy when they develop that. So it was under vet care, um, stayed at the vet, but it did not make, they used that puppy to come in on Irina and rave her and take dogs that she had, but they also took her children's pets. They took the chickens. I mean, they took all kinds of animals from her. And so these animals from what we can understand are, uh, they're at the Fox here SPCA Um, but we have a lot of questions. You know, this happened in 2020. This is now 2022. Her trial is not until September of this year. Um, The thing with Irina Barrett's case that's very, um, I think, uh, shocking, and I don't know how unusual it is, but I think it's something we need to pay attention to is that some of these dogs were not hers. They belonged to other people, and those people have not been able to get their dogs back. Now, what does this spell for someone? Uh, say you go on vacation and you leave your dog at a kennel. Well, what if that kennel is raided while you're gone on vacation? Are you not entitled to get your dog back? You know, the, And when you look at the ownership definition in the code, you can see how they're getting away with this. So the people that had uh, the dogs, that owned the dogs, still have not had the dogs returned. Uh, the dogs, at least one of them, uh, has been used in a fundraising effort uh, oh there at the FOCUR SPCA. I mean, this is crazy. If these dogs are evidence, why are they being used in this way? Uh, we have a lot of questions about this case. And as it drags on and on and on, uh, the FOCUR SPCA and other people, they're complaining about having to care for these dogs. But Irene's case is unusual because she has a very good attorney, uh, Trey Mayfield. and. He has successfully argued that her criminal case should be heard before her civil case. Typically what happens, we're learning in these cases, the civil case happens first. Mm-hmm. You lose your animals before you're even convicted oh, of animal gosh. cruelty. The animals are gone. So with Irina's case, though, she her attorney has changed this. He's flipped it on its head. She's going to get her criminal case heard first, which is the way it should be. Right, but Um, the, the Fox SPCA and the the different people involved, they don't like this. They say it's taking too long. This is taking too long. Well, this is why we need due process. Had IRENA been given due process? Had there been an actual welfare check before the raid? I mean, is this uh, such a foreign idea? That we would not have a welfare check ahead of time. Right. Um, you know, if certain steps had been taken first, this whole thing could have been avoided. And what is really exceptional with her case is that in November, Irina was offered a deal. She was offered, they asked if she had any interest in a deal whereby all charges against her would be dropped in exchange for the animals. And Irina refused that deal. She is she is a fighter, and she is going to fight this. But this case has so, taken so many twists and turns. It's getting more and more publicity, and I mean, it is horrific to see how her and her family have been treated uh, in Fauquier County, Virginia. It, it is awful
0: to see. I mean, these are these are our children, our fur babies, right? And I mean, it, members of our family. And I just can't imagine what that's like for those for people for Irina, but also for the people that had their fur babies there and, you know, you, you just don't have access to them. And, and there hasn't been any, you know, there wasn't any real investigation. Just imagine if it was your actual children, the state just came in and yanked your kids and, and without an investigation, without, you know, any other notice and, and farmed them out into foster care and you know, you've got to wait several years. It's just, it's, it's mind blowing. It's heartbreaking. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this, the dog that was in the picture for the Focqueer, um, uh, animal shelter, was it a, was it a expensive breed dog by chance?
1: I believe it was a French bulldog. Right. Irina could confirm that for us, but I believe it was the French bulldog. One so of them. So, coincidentally, you know, there, I'm sure that
0: this, I mean, I'm drawing, jumping to conclusions a little bit here, but we know that this retail rescue bit goes on all the time, right?
1: Yes. Uh, the more that you dive into this, and again, I want to say, I think a lot of uh, people in rescue accomplish good things. I, I do believe that. I have friends in rescue, but <laughs> there is a very dark side to this. And we need to get everything out there. And we need to to really sit down uh, as a society and say, whoa, 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 we gotta put some brakes on here. Uh, if that dog is evidence, why is that dog being used to fundraise? Um, you know, out on the street. Uh, you know, there's there's handling the way these animals are handled, the way these cases are handled, there's a lot of things that are being handled in an improper way. Right. And
0: you mentioned that we had this due process bill for the Virginia animal owners Alliance that came through. And what, what really has struck me this last year. And <clears throat> we, you know, we had, I was here a few years ago for a bill that you and I worked on and then we had COVID and, and you've definitely done an amazing job carrying the torch. And, and I know it. you're closer than I am sometimes, but you're still, you know, <laughs> still hours from the Capitol. But oh. If people aren't paying attention at the state level, it seems like federally, you know, a lot of those laws, they don't move super fast or, you know, things can get thrown in at the last minute for sure. But at the state level, you don't have time to even blink with the speed at which these laws are being introduced and, and being heard in subcommittee and regular committee. And by the time they hit the floor, if you're finding out about them at that time, it's too late to change anything. And then, you know, even on the the laws like this that we're trying to be proactive and introduce, so much can happen in the blink of an eye. But, um, what do you think about the direction that we're going with our due process bill?
1: So, the bill, uh, as I mentioned, it was amended. Uh, The original bill was going to impact and help all animal owners in the state of Virginia because if the pre crime language had been removed, uh, that would have helped everyone. That would have required more fact finding for everyone. So that was the, um, I think the biggest intent of our bill was to give everybody more due process under the law. Uh, But on the House subcommittee side, they decided to remove the due process language. So we're very disappointed with that, Uh, but we think it's a battle for another day. Uh, What the subcommittee did recognize and we were very thankful for this is that they recognize the special needs of zoo animals. So, you know, this, Uh, You can't just pick up and carry most zoo animals around like you might a cat or a dog. (laughs) So there's special handling requirements. A lot of them have to be tranquilized to even have a simple procedure done. So the subcommittee on the House side did recognize this, and they did uh, want to involve a state veterinarian before a seizure can take place at a zoo. So we thought that that was a very uh, important first step. Um, We got to get this conversation going somewhere, and this is a first step. Right. So we um, continue to support the bill. Uh, right now, it's gone on through the Senate side on the Senate uh, Agriculture Committee. And they're going to form a stakeholder group uh, with zoo owners and uh, different people from VDAX, the Virginia Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, to try to get to the bottom of some of these things, to try to give zoos more due process. So I think this is a very important step. We're having good conversations. But it's just the beginning. We have to keep working on this. Right.
0: And we know in that stakeholder group, we're going to have those detractors also representatives from HSUS or PETA. And I have to worry just a little bit about some of the vets that are in the state, too, because especially in the Arena Barrett case. And, uh, you know, that vet had to be complicit somehow, Um uh, in broadcasting or making known this, what was going on with her puppy. So we, we, for, we think, I mean, I think anyway, sometimes when I go to the vet, it's like going to the doctor. Um, I'd personally Mm -hmm. rather go to my vet for my own care (laughs) if I have that (laughs) choice, but, um, but the, but the vets don't have the same, um, you know, privacy, uh requirements that medical doctors do and I don't think all animal owners realize that
1: there is definitely what I've learned through all of this <laughs> is that you think when you go to the vet you think you're doing the right thing right I'm going to the vet I'm doing what I'm supposed to do I'm trying to get help for my animal and that's what we're saying here in Virginia that that this animal law unit, because they train animal control officers, they are spreading this message. They are teaching people. This is the mentality that people are adopting. And what they have done is they have weaponized emergency vet care and they're using it against people. And people are very unsuspecting. They go to the vet, they which they should do. But what we're saying is that Emergency vet care should not be weaponized against people in this way. And that's what has to change. Because if people are afraid to go to the vet, that's going to hurt animal welfare. People should not be afraid to go to the vet. They need to be able to go. They need to be able to have a good conversation with their vet, a good rapport with their vet. And the vets also... I think, are under a lot of pressure. The more we learn about these things, the vets should not be pressured in the way that they are by the animal rights community. So we all need to come to the table and talk about this, um, you know, and and say, hey, these people are doing the right thing. Coming to the vet, taking that puppy when it stops eating, taking it to the vet. That's what you're supposed to do. Don't criminalize these people for doing the right thing. Right. And if
0: people can't see the writing on the wall that, you know, what happens in Virginia is likely to spread, it, it really, you know, you and I have talked, we're finding incidents, incidences where particularly Michelle Welch has reach into other states, into other cases in this area. And then um, I plan on having uh, some, some reptile people from Phoenix on in the future, and part of our um, Arizona animal Alliance, but we had this case in in Phoenix area about a year ago. A guy had a guy that raised Aldabra tortoises, and Aldabra tortoises are very valuable. They a basketball sized tortoise is probably about fifty or sixty thousand dollars, and they'll Mm. get huge. Um, You know, they'll get four times that size, and as they grow, they they are more expensive. But keep in mind, you better be real patient because those large tortoises are you know, they're going to be 50, 100 years old,
1: right? So,
0: <laughs> uh, some, some of my reptile friends say, oh, this is my retirement, you know, in 50 years. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but some people do a great job breeding those tortoises. And, um, you know, they, it's definitely a skill and it's definitely necessary to have the that skill set to to care for it and make sure that those animals are around the planet in the long-term. And anyhow, somebody had uh, broke into this guy's property at night with a pickup truck, and they were trying to lift this tortoise who probably weighed a hundred pounds or more. I might be way off on that actually, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. they, he caught them. He had a security system and it alerted him and, and he ran out there and in their haste to get away, they ran over this tortoise and Mm. they, they injured it severely. So um, he calls the police and the police show up around midnight and the Arizona humane association is accompanied um, the police and they um, demand for, from the police that this guy be charged with animal cruelty because this injured tortoise is walking around. Uh, he's trying to get a hold of his vet, and uh, they they try to gain access to his property, to his records, um, to the rest of his collection of tortoises. This is this is right after you know his tortoise was was uh, injured during the process of a theft. And so after some digging, um, you know, people in our, our association um, in Arizona started asking questions like, gosh, why were these people even there? And it turns out that they had this uh, agreement with um, this particular Metro PD department that whenever there's an animal crime involved, um, or an animal involved in a crime, that they're to be notified. And there wasn't a lot of uh, guidelines written out in their contract with what they could or couldn't do. So um, a little more digging and we find out, well, wow, this Michelle Welch goes to Phoenix regularly and puts on these uh, discussions and trainings. And, uh, you know, it's, it's quite possible that there's a connection there and whether there is or isn't, you know, definitely these are the same types of due processes and, um, you know, there needs to be more protections in place to protect people who are actual victims in the case of this, this tortoise person or, you know, like protections for the people that are really trying to do the right thing with their animals.
1: Right, right. And just uh, talking about the national aspect of this, I'm sure that a lot of your, listeners are familiar with the Animal Legal Defense Fund. Um, If not, they need to be. (laughs) They're very much against farmers and pretty much anyone that owns an animal, but farms are a big part of this. Uh, And Michelle Welch works directly with the Animal uh, Legal Defense Fund. They help provide uh, funding to either the prosecution or the office. There's there's something there in regards to the grant money that comes from the Animal Legal Defense Fund. So there's a whole connection here. This is a national problem. And the precedents that are being set in Virginia are bound to impact others across the nation.
0: Right. And I forget about her trainings because she does do these webinars and trainings throughout the world that all have to do with finding these loopholes and, um, you know, seizing and confiscating
1: animals. Um, I know that she has gone as far as Greece. So, you know, this is, um, and and a lot of people, and I think we need to get this out there. This is bigger than one person. Um, There's a very active person here, but this is bigger than one person. But Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, what people are getting away with in Virginia (laughs) shows that we need to uh, take notice. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be oversight. We keep asking, where is the oversight? Of the animal law unit. Um, you know, there's just more and more questions. The deeper you get into this, you have more questions than answers. Um, but this problem is definitely bigger than Virginia.
0: Right. Absolutely.
1: Well, great. I know you've mentioned
0: the Virginia Animal Owners Alliance Facebook page. Um, is that the best way, Heidi, to for people if they have any questions to get a hold of you?
1: I think so. That's probably the easiest way. Um, you know, our office number, all of that. You can reach out to me through that those means too, or you can email me, but all of that information is on the Facebook page. And I would just really encourage people to go there and to see, um, you know, some of the legislation that we've been working on this session in the last couple of months, uh, the stories of animal owners uh, from Virginia uh, that are on there. Um, and just, you know, take a little time to educate yourself Um, You know, just simple things. Uh, The fact that in Virginia, you're held uh, responsible for the feral cat on your property, if that feral cat uh, has a problem, even if you can't catch the cat, you can still be held responsible. These are all issues that I think would really matter to farmers. And if it's happening in Virginia, it could happen in your state. So just take time to go to the Facebook page. And, you know, the more educated we are, I really believe uh, that knowledge is power. So education is key to preparing ourselves. And, and we need to really organize, I think, to figure out how we can fight back against this very radical agenda.
0: Absolutely. We all have more in common than we have uh, with differences, whether you're just a pet owner or you're a dairy farmer or a you know, cattle rancher, um, you know, even if you're the beekeeper.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
0: so. Well, I thank you so much today for joining us on the Desert Ranch podcast, Heidi. I I hope you have a great rest of the day, and I look forward to further conversations about all these um, topics, and and hopefully um, we'll we'll have some good news to report on all of this in the future.
1: Thank you very much, Vanessa. It was nice to be with you today. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Desert Ranch Podcast. We hope we gave you a good look into the lives of those that care for land and livestock far past the 9 to 5 lifestyle. Until we talk again, have a fantastic week. The Desert Ranch Podcast is brought to you from Indian Springs Working Ranch, located in the beautiful Palencio Wilderness Mountains of eastern Arizona. Indian Springs Working Ranch provides guests with an authentic working ranch experience. Guests will herd cattle, on horseback, repair fences, and live as real ranch hands do. Check it out at www.indianspringsworkingranch.com. Also brought to you by Our Lazy J Wildlife Ranch, an education and conservation breeding ranch in Eager, Arizona. Get up close and personal with more than 56 species from around the world. Encounter sloth and lemur, cheetah and clouded leopard, as well as many types of hooved, feathered, and scaled wildlife. On the web at rlazyjranch.com. Today's Desert Ranch podcast is brought to you by Roar Zufari, located in Vienna, Virginia. Known as Fairfax County's largest petting zoo, Roar Zufari's goal is to connect families and animals and create awareness, understanding of wildlife, and the environment in which it lives. The 30 acre family owned zoo is located at 1228 Hunter Mill Road in Vienna, Virginia. Visitors are offered a Zufari tour, walking tour, camel rides and the zoo features a large walk-in parakeet aviary magical butterfly gardens and numerous memorable opportunities to get close to animals of all sizes on the web at www.roarszufari.com also on instagram and facebook